0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Okay, welcome back to uh, marriage class. We are doing our final sessions tonight. Um, We're going to be covering common problems, and then also a a small amount on communication and finance. So let's pray and then get to it. Father, we thank you for your love for each one here, Lord. Um, You are concerned not only about um, marriages, but Lord, about future marriages, Lord, about where we will be in five years, as well as where we have come from. And we are so glad that we can just cast our burdens at your feet, as always, and you will carry us forward. So tonight, as we uh, enter this time of teaching and learning, would you please uh, equip me to speak, and would you help these here to listen? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, common problems. Now, there's a lot of problems that come up in marriages, so obviously I'm not going to cover every single one. It's impossible. But these are the kind of the main themes that I think most problems kind of come down through. And the first area we're going to talk about is the area of sin from your past. Sin from your past. Now this, of course, even in and of itself, is a pretty big topic, right? Think about the the way in which you were raised. There was probably certain behaviors that you did that were sinful, and you've carried them into when you met Christ. When you met Christ, he forgave you of your sins, but you still have patterns of of sin, patterns of thought, patterns of behavior. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you meet someone else's family, maybe for the first time, or you go over to dinner and you think you know them? And then you have dinner together and all these things kind of come out in conversation and you see things in their house and you're like, who are these people? Well, it's because they have different backgrounds, don't they? They have certain things that they're, they're used to, things that they're expecting. And it shapes people, right? And in marriage, the same thing is true. Two people put together, but they have completely different backgrounds, different things they were raised in. So the first area we're going to talk about is sin that you came from from your development, things that came from your parents or your own individual upbringing. And one of the most common things about, uh, about sin is this issue that I brought up about when you go over and see somebody else. When you see somebody else, it's much clearer what usually what the sin or what the kind of propensities that they have. It's a lot harder for us to identify those things ourselves. One of the words for um, the the word iniquity in the Bible is avon, which means literally a bend. And if you think about like a tree, and we've had all these hurricanes, right? Sometimes you drive across a street and you'll see a palm tree that goes like this. Instead of going straight out of the ground, it'll come like this. It'll come at like a 15 or 20 degree angle from the ground, and then it will turn straight up, right? So you have these palm trees that are basically... Quick artistic impression here and there, this. And then it grows straight from there, and then we have all the beautiful branches. And look at my beautiful art, right? And so, this here is what the Bible describes as iniquity, sin. But we don't see our own sin as well as other people may see it. So, the issue is what have we brought into a marriage? What have we brought into a relationship? What have we brought that we are ourselves doing? That is going to, if we don't fix it, will become a bend in the children and their grandchildren. And I think it's really helpful for us to think of it that way because I think one of the most important things that a Christian can do is decide that in their family that they are going to be a firewall of sin. You guys know what a firewall is? So there's a physical firewall. In fact, we have one in this building, and it's a, a wall that is coated with this material that if a fire did start in the building, it would stop at that point. They also have firewalls, of course, in, within the computing world, right? That if you have a firewall on your computer that no matter what virus comes in, it says it's going to be shut down right here. And our responsibility as Christians is to say, I'm going to be the firewall for what gets passed on to the next generation. And that's not an easy thing to do, but it is a noble and beautiful thing to do. One of the most important things that happens in our lives as we grow up is we react to certain things. We react to how we were raised. Think back to your parents, the things they said to you, the way that they treated you, um, maybe patterns of behavior that you learned from them. And I don't know if you've had this experience, I think most people do, but where you think to yourself, you know what, my mom or dad did this and I'm never going to do that again and we kind of create what's called an inner vow. Like, they did this, I will never do that again. And I have actually a warning for us about this inner vow thing. It's really easy to say that, it's much harder to do it, and you can actually create a new error if you don't treat it the right way. Let me give you an example. Pretend there's a couple. They go to the grocery store, a husband and a wife. The husband stops by the aisle with all the Coca-Cola and the Sprite and all the soft drinks. And he just piles it into the cart, just 12-pack of this and 12-pack of that and this and that and root beer. And, and the wife's like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna, what are we gonna, the dentist bills and the craziness and the kids are gonna be high on sugar. And he's thinking, this is great. When I grew up, my parents wouldn't let me have soda at all. So I I made a vow like I'm never going to deny my kids from this beautiful privilege of having soda whenever they want. Because this guy made the decision that he would go against what he was raised by, he ended up creating not a solution but a new problem. This is the issue when you're dealing with an inner vow. You have to be very careful with it because it's one of those things that you can create a new avon, a new bend, that your kids are now going to have to deal with also. So you just gave them two problems, not one. What are we supposed to do? We're most supposed to make sure that we don't, and this is the scripture, we're supposed to not swear about things. We're not supposed to make any kind of declarations. We're supposed to simply be submitted to God's word, submitted to what he wants out of our behavior, right? Right? Because our tendency, again, is to try to fix things and then make it twice as bad. You have to be very, very careful about this. In our our speech, we're told to say things like, if the Lord wills or if the Lord wants this to happen, so be it. But be very careful about inner vows. And think just for a second about maybe things that you've said to yourself. I grew up in a certain way. I'm never going to maybe speak to my kids a certain way. Maybe you said, my parents shoved religion down my throat. I'm never going to tell them about Jesus. That's just too much. Or they always made me work really, really hard as a kid. I didn't have much of a childhood, so I'm going to let my kids have tons of fun and play. You react to things. And sometimes we do what's called overreacting. And we, instead of just getting on the horse to actually ride and do what the Lord wants us to do, we overreact. Take the situation about the religion. Let's say somebody did shove religion down your throat when you were a kid. Let's say some people have that experience, right? Oh, I've been to the church thing when I was a kid. We had to go every Sunday. I'm never going to take my kids to church. Well, great, but now you have kids who have no idea what to do with their sin. You've just created a new problem. You just created an atheist, basically. What's the correct response? I need to figure out what it is that the Bible actually teaches and show that to my children. Not force it, but show it as an example, to be an example. That's getting on the horse and actually riding The other one is just jumping to the other side of the horse. And what happens generationally is that one generation makes one mistake, the next generation makes the opposite mistake, and then three generations, four generations later, they just keep flipping the mistake and nobody rides the horse. What we need to make sure is that we don't make inner vows that are things that the Lord has not asked us to do. The second thing in dealing with uh, things from your past, specifically dealing with parents, is the the issue of relationships with parents. Now, everybody has a unique relationship with their mom or their dad. Some are good, some are bad, some are in between. But a lot of people get stuck about this, dealing with, the mother-in-law, the father-in-law, the, all the family that comes with it, and all the influences. What are you supposed to do? Are we supposed to listen to them? Are we supposed to do our own thing? Are they supposed to uh, give us advice? Are we supposed to not take their advice on? And again, it's that whole, are we going to get on the horse and ride, or are we just going to keep, I'm, I'm going to, my parents tried teaching me too much, I'm just going to ignore them after I become 18. Well, great, you just created a new problem, right? Again, one of these situations. The Bible gives us great clarity on this. We are told, of course, in the scriptures that we're supposed to honor our mother and father, right? Does that ever change however old you get? No, it does not. But there is a difference between honor and authority. When you... So honor versus authority when you are under someone else's house even above the age of 18 you are under their authority you've placed yourself there because you're saying i am dependent on you when you're you're in that situation you are under their authority because it's their place it's their rules but if you move out of the house and you're on your own as an adult You're not under their authority, but you still have to honor them. And this is where a lot of people get into problems, is they confuse the two. Oh, well, if I honor my parents, then I have to do every single thing they say. Well, again, what's the point? Is, Is the point to follow Jesus and to give your life to him and learn how to do that? Or is it just to listen to what your parents say? Jesus wants to be the ultimate authority in our lives, right? So we need to make sure that we can honor our parents but we're not under their authority. Parents can lead kids to do wrong things. They can lead them to do sinful things. There's nothing in and of themselves good about parenting. It depends What kind of parent are they? What are the influences that they're bringing? Honoring a parent means you can still say, I respect your opinion about that, but we're going to do this other thing. Thank you for bringing it up, but we've decided in our house that we are as for me and my house, right? You have those plaques, right? As for me and my house, what are we going to do? We're going to serve the Lord. And this is a hard thing within families because most parents want you to follow their ways. Whether they're good ways or bad ways, that's kind of what a parent's job is, right? Your, your job as a parent, for those of you who have kids, is to kind of help them to mimic what you think is the right way. But at the end of the day, you have to make your own decisions. And a marriage is, is, is really good When it's able to say, you know, as for us, we've decided we're going to serve the Lord, and that's kind of it. We're going to build our house. Parents have had their opportunity to do that. Now we have our opportunity to do that. We honor and respect someone's decision, or we honor and respect what you've done in our past. We thank you for that. But again, you're not under authority unless you're actually living under the house. I've heard this great statement about how to consider parents, especially if you're married and you're not living under the roof, that parents should be seen as special friends. They're not supposed to be just like your other friends that you can say hi to when you want or not. They're supposed to be a part of your life. And of course, I understand there's all kinds of parent and child relationships. Some are terribly strained. Some don't exist at all. Some have a lot of baggage. But again, we're supposed to treat our parents as special friends, which means that when they come over, they're not supposed to be moving your furniture. Do your friends come over and rearrange your furniture? Do they tell you how to do all this stuff in your life? No, you're supposed to give them a place of honor, but they don't have authority in your home you can ask their advice, but again, special friends. They've done incredible things for you. And the whole point is that at the end of the day, the goal for parents and children in marriage by marriage by marriage, generation by generation by generation, the goal is that by the end of the raising, is that you can actually be a friend of your child. You can be someone who can speak to them. And eventually, the, the, the greatest goal biblically was that they would actually be a brother or sister in the Lord but a special friend, not somebody who is still under the authority. Now, this issue of things from our past, things from your parents, think about all the things you learned growing up. If you could give a percentage, and you're just in your mind, just thinking on your own, about what percentage of the things that you were taught, let's say 70% of the things you were taught, that you say are good for you of course especially as a as a christian would you say it was 60% of the things that you were taught was good is it 30 is it 10 whatever it is of course depending on the situation you have to figure out lordship right because if there was only 10% good from your upbringing There's a lot of stuff that you're going to have to reconfigure in your life. Ways of thinking. Ways of dealing with conflict. Let's talk about that for a minute. How was conflict dealt with in your home as you grew up? Did your parents talk it out? Did they yell it out? Did they fist fight it out? Did they broken beer bottle it out? How did they deal with conflict? Whatever they did, you have learned that behavior. Even if you don't like it. You've learned it because you saw it. And we are wonderful and terrible creatures about this issue of habit, right? When we see things, we can copy it for better or for worse. If you saw mom or dad deal with stress, right? How did they deal with stress? They prayed. Wow, you just got shown an incredible habit that you can carry with you. What if mom and dad smoked and drank in order to deal with stress? I can't handle this anymore. then you've just learned that the way to deal with stress is by smoking. Or you learned to deal with stress by drinking, or taking drugs, or watching too much TV, or eating way too much co- chocolate cake. Whatever it was. Not that that's actually possible, I understand. But whatever those habits were, you've learned them. And they're in you unless you choose to be the sin firewall. And I would encourage everyone to do, especially in, in, in the midst of marriage or looking ahead towards marriages, is to take a good, honest look at your past. Take a good, honest look. And say, these things are worthy of keeping. Whether it's a work ethic that you were... I mean, like, it's, it's almost impossible that your parents taught you nothing good. Okay? But you just take a good, honest look. Was it work ethic? Was it a positive attitude? Was it... Um, being optimistic. Whatever it was, keep those things. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But then take a good honest look also at the things that were in error. You know, there was too much yelling in my house. They didn't know how to forgive. If you've ever been around people that don't know how to forgive others, guess what? You just learned the behavior of unforgiveness. Some people struggle. They're like, I don't know how to forgive. Well, it's probably because you saw it Never. <laughs> you don't understand. My mom and my dad, da, 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 whatever it is, you know, and they never forgave anybody. They always, they always held a grudge. Have you, or maybe you're in a home that held a grudge. That's how they dealt with things. No one's going to deal with us this way in our family. We're this family. We're the, we're the Halls. We're the McCaffreys, and no one will treat us that way ever. Okay. But you're going to have to decide, are you under the lordship of that? Or are you under the lordship of Jesus? We all have a decision to make in a family. What kind of family are we going to be? What kind of marriage is this going to be? What kind of sin is going to be passed on if we don't take care of this thing now? Sin firewall. And that gets me to the last topic for this issue of the common problems of the sins that have been passed on the power of forgiveness. Now, you've probably heard it stated from this pulpit and maybe other pulpits, but it always bears repeating. When you don't forgive, and this may be in the situation of family and all this kind of stuff, it may be not forgiving your parents, or even siblings. I don't know how your siblings treated you. Uncles, aunts, maybe there was abuse. Physical, emotional, sexual even. If you don't forgive those who have hurt you, it's putting you in the prison. It's keeping you in the prison. We all know what it's like to forgive someone, or at least I hope you know what it's like, that you feel like does not deserve forgiveness that's really hard right it's one thing if somebody comes groveling to you and says oh i'm so sorry that i treated you this way and they're showing this i kind of like idealized repentance and and remorse and all the things you hope that somebody will do who sins against you but what about forgiving the person who really doesn't deserve it because they are not showing remorse because they are not showing repentance. They're just showing the same thing they've showed for the last 20 years. You know human beings like that? Most people do. Those are the ones that you have to forgive and work at the most. Because you're gonna want resolution that may not ever come to you on this side of eternity. I hate to break it to you, but it's just reality. It's reality. The decision you have to make is not whether the person is worthy of your forgiveness if they've hurt you. The issue you have to deal with is this. Do you want to carry that prison and then pass it on to your kid? Do you want them to have to deal with the same thing you're dealing with two and three generations ago? Think about a grandchild. Think about a little baby who grows up never learning how to forgive their enemies. It's a great big, it's a huge lesson in the Christian life, right? What will that that contribute to that kid's life? These are the kind of issues you have to think about because these are generational things that happen. If you don't forgive, it's a jail cell for you. But here's the great news, and you probably know this, but you also probably need to be reminded of it because I need to be reminded of it because we all need to be reminded of it. You have to ask the Lord to help you to forgive the things that were done wrong. And don't make the fatal mistake of making it about your feelings. I don't feel like forgiving. I've heard that from a lot of people. Well, I don't feel, I'm, I'm not ready to forgive. I'm not I'm not this, I'm not that. Guess what you've just done? You've made forgiveness conditional. And when you make forgiveness conditional, you have just made the hugest mistake in understanding Jesus. Because Jesus is not about works based forgiveness, is he? He's not waiting for you to show enough that he would forgive you. He goes before you, right? While, while, while we were yet still sinners, he died for us. He made the first move, he made it possible for us to receive the forgiveness. We have to operate that way. We can't put conditions on it. That as a person, if they finally act this way, then I'll forgive. If I feel better on Thursday, then I'll forgive. The Bible says clearly, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why is that? Because if you let your anger burn through the night, the next day, does it become stronger or weaker? Stronger. And you sleep on it another night, and it's like it's like sealing in the anger under a coat. Like within ceramics, we have this thing where we put it into an oven. And when you do that, it makes the ceramic not lighter or easier, but harder. And then you put on a layer of paint or whatever it is that glaze and it gets harder still. And every night that you sleep on anger, that you sleep on sin, it doesn't lessen it. Sometimes you think it'll go away. Oh, maybe it'll go away by morning if I just sleep on it. Not with sin. Because sin doesn't sleep. It just gets harder and harder and harder. And then guess what happens to your marriage and your personality? It gets harder and harder and harder. We have to be very careful about the issue of sin, and we have to be very intentional about forgiveness. You're having trouble forgiving? I understand, but... Go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to choose to forgive this person because you chose to forgive me. It's a decision of the will, not of the emotion. First Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And guys, we often look at like family, right? We look at like all the classic Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas celebrations and Easter and all this kind of stuff. And we're like this beautiful picture of family. Family is only as beautiful as you make it. Marriage is only as beautiful as you make it. And the more you are the sin firewall to get rid of those bends, the more blessed the marriage is. The more powerful, the better witness, the softer, the kinder, the gentler. Have you ever met people who are like in their 80s? Who are just gentle and the most like salt of the earth kind of people? And you're like, how are they so nice? I'm, I'm talking about older people who have not gotten harder with age but softer with age. It's because they made decisions like this when they were in their 30s and 20s. He said, we're not going to let this behavior continue on. I met this guy in the grocery store just earlier this week. Sweet, sweet guy. He's probably got to be late 60s. And I never knew this particular thing about him until I learned it just a couple days ago. That he had had this horrible thing happen to him about 20 years ago. And he was talking about it. And you could tell he just was like, he kind of just shut it down. He's like, but you know, praise the Lord. The Lord told me to get out of that Situation. It was a big, high paying job. It was kind of the thing where he probably had poured his whole career into it. He had chosen not, you could just tell, he had chosen not to become resentful of that thing that happened in his life. And the product was that now here he was, a joyful man, doing a very humble job. And the joy of the Lord, I know this about this guy, I've seen it for years. It all begins because he made a decision. What if he had decided the other way around? What if he had decided not to let the Lord heal his wounds and his hurts? Today, where would he be? He'd just be another grumpy old man. And there's lots of them around. The decisions you make today reflect the kind of person that you're going to be, reflect the kind of marriage you'll be in, all these things. They begin by decisions you make here and now. Let's talk about another common problem. The common problem that comes next has somewhat to do with what we just talked about, but it's a little bit different. It's the issue of nothing more than feelings. 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 This is running out of juice. Feelings. And specifically, Waning or fading feelings on movies, TV shows. Maybe you've even heard this about a friend's uh, friends' uh, marriages or relationships. You've heard this this the sentence or the phrase. Well, we just kind of fell out of love. Yep. We just fell out of love, you know. So we decided, you know. After the kids were raised, uh, we would just go our separate ways. Have you heard about these stories? Those are so sad. It's like you did all the hard work in raising the kids. Now you're supposed to be able to enjoy it and be like, cheesecake every day and nobody's going to eat it. Come on. But no, instead, (laughs) instead, and the problem is this, the waning of feelings and the overemphasis on feelings. Some people feel in a marriage that there's inequality. Well, I love him this much, but he doesn't love me that much. Oh, really? How do you know? Well, because I don't feel, feel, feel. And it always comes back to this issue of feelings. Now, your feelings are important, but they're not that important Don't let them become the leading force in your life. A lot of people do. They are emotionally driven people. And emotionally driven people are unstable because they react to everything according to their feelings rather than according to what is true and right and good. And let's go back to that whole picture over here with the bent palm tree. One of the main bends that people have is that they are emotionally driven people. If they don't feel right about a business decision, if they don't feel like taking out the trash, if they don't feel like being nice, they aren't. What happens if you don't take out the trash because you don't feel like it? Your house stinks terribly, right? What happens if you don't learn to be nice when you don't feel like being nice? You become an incredibly angry person and really hard to please and no one will want to be around you and you become a terrible friend. There's a great analogy and you think of your life this way. There's, the, there's a train. and This is going to be a really bad um, um, drawing but here we go. The train, we have the, the engine and we have the caboose. I think that's how you spell caboose. Anyhow, last train... First train. So, engine, first train, caboose is, in this case, the fourth one of the last train. The engine and the caboose. Your life as a Christian is not supposed to not have feelings, it's supposed to put feelings in the right place and order. Does anybody think that the engine of your life is supposed to be your feelings? Yeah, no, I'm kidding. It's a classic quick overreaction, so obviously not. So no. no, the engine of your life is supposed to be truth. And if you let truth be the engine, the thing that guides your life, the thing that is a principle that you live by. Let's say, for example, the truth of Jesus' love for you. Let's just take that as an example. Are you going to, as a Christian, are you going to wake up every moment... And throughout every day going to be consumed with feeling the love of Jesus in every moment of your life? Absolutely not. But is it true in every moment of your life that Jesus loves you and that he will never leave you or forsake you? Have you ever said that verse to yourself when you were struggling or having a bad day or even a bad hour or a bad minute? The Lord will never leave me or forsake you. Have you you ever comforted yourself with that? I think I did just earlier today. That is what it means to put truth as the engine of your life. You're feeling a certain way, but you're not going to let your feeling about Jesus reinterpret or change the truth of what Jesus has expressed in the word. When you live out of truth, then this marvelous thing happens. When you live with truth as the engine, then your feelings fall in line. And you actually become a much more stable individual because your feelings are the things that catch up with truth. When people in marriage say the issue of we've fallen out of love, what they're saying is how I feel about my spouse, what I feel when we wake up, what I feel on the date, what I feel at supper, and I feel at, the, at the, whatever the thing is that you're doing, is the only thing I'm thinking about. Well, what is the truth? I made a vow at an altar that in sickness and in health, I would love this person. That no matter riches or poor, I would take care of them. Why do you think we take vows at an altar? It's to remind ourselves that we are basing a marriage not on feeling or truth. In fact, I would say that probably a lot of people think about the actual day that you got married. Some people have gloriously happy, wonderful marriages, uh, wedding days. Some days, wedding days can be just stressful, and I don't. I understand why. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you have to kind of get together. I'm for like the old-fashioned, like you know, get people in church potluck. You know, show up at two, have some punch afterwards, make it simple, enjoy your friends, get some pizza. That's just my opinion. Trying to convince a bride about that. A much harder deal to do, right? That's right. But the whole point is this. If you build your marriage and you remind yourself of the truths, of the vows, of the promises. Now, of course, both parties have to do this, right? This can't be just the women or just the men because both deal with the issue of the whole idea of falling out of love. But if you base your life and your marriage on, I know My wife cares for me. I know I've made a commitment to love her. Whether or not she loves me well today or not, I'm going to love her. We're just celebrating a 20-year anniversary today, right? I'm guessing there are many days within those 20 years where you had to make the decision, I'm going to continue to love him. I'm going to continue to love her. And because you made that decision, that's why you still feel in love with each other. It's not the other way around. And that's where people make the fatal mistake. They put the feelings first and saying, I'm going to put truth first, and the feelings will follow. Maybe you'll feel in love with your wife in two days after serving her really, really, really well. Because the things that you love and that you put time into, those are the things that you're more likely to actually develop feelings for. What we do is people stop doing the, 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 the big things in life. And I'm going to go through four things, four categories, about how to deal with this issue of being unequal or unloved or in some cases even feeling like they're uh, just out of whack. So four, four kind of angles to confront this problem. The first one is the issue of priority. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. Priority. This is kind of a review from Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, which in the, the, the main verse here is that man shall leave his mother and father. Leaving. Does your spouse know that they are the number one person in your life, aside from Jesus Christ? Do they know? If you ask them, hey, do you feel like you're number one after Jesus? Would their answer be quickly like, yeah, sure, of course I know. Or would it be like, well, sometimes. Then the issue you need to resolve is the issue of priority. If they don't know that you're number one. Legitimate jealousy, right? For women, for men, they have different things that men like. Like men sometimes treat golf, more importantly, than their spouse. Or for women, they treat going to the salon, more importantly, (laughs) than time with their spouse. Whatever it is, guys sometimes spend more time working on a car than hanging out with their wife. Sometimes women spend more time on their hair than hanging out with their husband. Or whatever it is, or on fashion, or on this or on that, spending habits. Whatever it is, if the person doesn't know that you, the person, is a priority, there's gonna be developing legitimate jealousy. My wife and I talk about this called a jealousometer. If something gets in our relationship, where, like, and you know how you have on the cars, like, if you go too fast, you know, kind of, and then a a little, like, light will go on on the dash, you know, like, engine problem or whatever, it's raising too much, and that jealousometer is starting to kind of be like, oh, there's somebody else that's kind of attracting the attention of the guy, or there's somebody else who's attracting the attention of the girl, that jealousometer will start to go to here, and if you don't clear that thing up, then it's gonna go to here, and if they don't get that thing worked out, it's gonna go to here, and things get crazy. If your jealousometer goes off, talk about it. Hey, you know what? This thing that you've been doing, this person that you've been hanging out with, I don't think it's good for our marriage. I think some things are happening in your heart or my heart. Deal with it. So that's the first one. Second thing is pursuit. Man shall, oops, I. I added an E to pursuit, sorry. (laughs) Priority, pursuit. Man shall leave his mother and father and cleave. This is the cleaving part. Cleave to his wife. If you don't actually treat a marriage much like you did when you were first dating and pursue your wife, pursue your husband, try to do little things to make them their day's special. A lot of things in marriage are about doing the little things. The big things, yeah, they matter, but the little things grease the wheels. Letting the person know that you're still after them. You still want to hang out with them. You still want to be next to them. You still want to hold hands. Do we still love each other? This is accomplished by cleaving to your wife. Now, What's the most, one of the most important things to do with the area of pursuit? A date night. Now, it could be a date morning. It could be a date afternoon. But sometime, once a week, just the two of you. Just the two of you. That's it. What does that tell the other person? It says, you know, I set aside this time for just the two of us. And the next week, I set aside this time for just the two of us. And there's this aspect of specialness that has developed and that expectation that no matter what happens in the week, this is set aside. Think about when you come to church. What are you actually telling Jesus when you come to church? Lord, I've set this aside. I've set this day aside. I've set this time aside. I've set this worship aside. I've set my ears aside for you. Jesus knows and sees your devotion to him by the time you set aside him same thing in a marriage and love after all is again love is a choice that you make make sure the other person knows you see them as someone special in their life some people feel that through time spent together some people feel that through gifts for them. Whatever it is, and you, it's, it's, it's pretty clear as day, if you hang out with one, a, a person for a single day, you can pretty much find out what are the things they like. Well, then get them the things they like. Unless it's a diamond ring, and then you got to talk about that and save up some money. I said, and then you have to think about it and save up some money. I'm not saying you can't do it. You shouldn't do it. <laughs> the second thing, or the third thing, excuse me, is Possession. Now, this is not demonic possession. Just what do we possess together? What do we share? A man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's the issue of sharing. A lot of marriages get into problems because they don't share things together as a couple. The biggest area, and we'll talk about this a little later, is the money. One person dominates. Or how they treat, though, that's my car. You can't can I use your car? No. Or maybe there's one room in the house, like the guy only hangs out in there. Can I hang out here? No. Every time there's something that is not shared and open to the to the to the relationship, right? Hey, can I have access to that checking account? No. Every time you say no to something that is supposed to be shared. Walls go up, relational walls. Coldness increases. Indifference increases. Apathy increases. Wall, 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 wall. And then people say, well, we fell out of love. No, it's not. You closed yourself off from each other. You don't even know who the other person is because you've let fear or whatever it is creep in and become the dominating feature of the relationship. It's just no, you're not supposed to withhold any legitimate area from the other person. Let's say you do control the finances. Does the other person have the right to come in and say, hey, where are we again with all this stuff? Open books. Open books. Both the, the man and the woman have equal right to see how things are being run. Don't hide things. Secrets? Secrets divide. Okay? Okay? People make this terrible mistake. They get married and they they make this thing called a prenuptial agreement. So silly. That's like sowing the seeds of doubt and frustration. Because I don't trust you now, because I think you're going to mess up in 20 years, let's make an agreement. You've just agreed that you're not going to be equal partners in sharing. Foolishness. Foolishness. You don't do that. And last thing is purity. Purity. Priority, they're number one after Jesus. Pursuit, we're still pursuing each other, date night. Possession, all that we have is shared together. Finances, time, etc. Children, even. And purity, this is a huge one. Men shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, they shall become one flesh, right? But now here we are, purity, and they will be naked and not ashamed. How do you get to the place where there's no shame in a marriage? And no shame, well, we get back to that first thing that we talked about with the iniquity and the sin. There's no sin that we're going to allow to become a dominating feature in our life. Does it mean there's going to be sin that happens? Of course. You're human beings. Weaknesses are around almost every corner. But here are some of the most important things with purity. The first is, especially with sexual purity. If there's anything in your life that is impure, you need to repent of that and take it before the Lord and ask Him to remove it. Now, for men and for women, I've talked about this before, that that, that session we had on sex, but this is so important. You have to make sure that your wife knows or that the husband knows that they are the only one in that relationship. One of the most harmful things that you can do when it comes to other people, and this goes back to the kind of the priority and the whole jealousometer, is if another person, let's say a woman, comes into uh, your husband's life and she likes him and he begins to talk to her. One of the worst things a husband can do is share his dreams, share his weaknesses with someone of the opposite sex that's not his wife. Don't do it. Don't share your dreams with another woman. Don't talk to her in a confidential way. You're just sowing the seeds of what real relationship is supposed to be about. We're not supposed to be sharing with people of, of the opposite sex. Don't be alone with someone of the opposite sex. That's even true like within, within dating. Date in a public place. If you need to talk to, if a guy needs to talk to a woman, talk to them in a public place. If it's in an office, doors open. In, in, even in church situations, if someone comes, someone comes for prayer with me, if it's a woman, I'm getting get another person. There's just no way I'm going to even, even allow that. That's not going to happen. And don't share those dreams, those desires, those deep things that ha- talk about, like, what is it that you really want in life? You don't share that with anybody but your spouse. That's, that's, that's what they're there for. That's what God put them there for. Now, we're going to close it there for right now. We'll come back and do a couple uh, finishing things. So let's pray, and let's t- spend some time talking. Well, Father, these, these are big issues, these common problems in, in marriage, about the issue of sin being a firewall for sin, dealing with things from our past, Lord, and how to prevent and make sure that we are doing things to keep sin out of relationship, out of marriage. Lord, they are so important. Would you please help us to, to guard our marriages, to guard our tongues, to guard our eyes and our hearts against things because the evil one will come and he wants to take not only us down and our marriage down, but he wants to take down our kids and the marriages that our kids are supposed to have and what the marriages are that the grandkids are supposed to have, Lord. Help us to commit, commit to be firewalls against the sins that we have, we have had in our lives. We say it ends... Here, it ends, now, Lord, deliver me from this and teach us to be a family that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus' name we pray.